Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. African immigrants to the United States have left their mark on all dimensions of American life. From the taxi drivers to the military officers to the NASA scientists and policymakers in the government and Congress, African immigrants contribute enormously to this country. However, when one looks at the food industry or restaurant space, African immigrants do not seem to fare as well. Except for Ethiopian restaurants, it is often a challenge to find a good African restaurant in major U.S. cities. Yet, as a continent of 54 countries, African cuisine is as varied and diverse as Africa. That cuisine, or shall I say those African cuisines, are often very healthy and African staple foods serve as a vital link connecting Africans to the global community. So why is it that we do not see many good African restaurants in the United States? Is it about food? We know Africans are entrepreneurial. Do they face other obstacles such as finance? Or is it about service? What would it take to change this situation? Joining me on Into Africa today to help address these questions is Pierre Thiam, a renowned chef, author, and social activists celebrated for popularizing West African cuisine globally through TED Talk and Box. Pierre is the executive chef of Teranga in New York City and Nok by Alara in Lagos, Nigeria, where he has introduced healthy, locally sourced West African dishes. Pierre is also the executive chef at the Pullman Hotel in Dakar, Senegal. Pierre Thiam, welcome to Into Africa. Thank you, Mamba. It's a pleasure to be here. So you have made it your business to feed people. You also made it your business to push African food uh, around the world, not just in, in Senegal and New York. I'm sure you've done a few other things. I read somewhere actually that you fed the King of Morocco and President Emmanuel Mar Macron of France. Why food? Why African food? And why do we still have these challenges? Why food? I guess food is vital. I mean, food is something we, we all need to have. And uh, I love food, actually. And why African food? This is the food I actually enjoy the most. Why am I doing this? You know, there's a lot of whys here. But why am I doing this? How I stumbled, actually. I stumbled into this, this profession is when I first arrived to, to New York as a young student. I had a student visa when I came to New York. And that was back in the early late 80s, early 90s, I was here after a period of student crisis in Senegal where we had, you know, we had a, a so many days of strikes that the government shut the university down. At the time, I was a student at Sheikhant Diop University, which was uh, in the Department of Physics and Chemistry. For me, to, to finish my degree, like many of my peers, we had to, to figure out a way to leave the country. And uh, no, there was no, no hope really for us. And um, out of all places, this uh, college in Ohio, in Cleveland, Ohio, accepted my application 
and I got a student visa from the embassy. So I was on my way to Ohio, decided to stop by New York. There was no direct flight from Dakar to, to Cleveland. So New York was a stop. I had a friend who lived here and that, that stop was supposed to be two weeks. It lasted 30 plus years. <laughs> so to make a long story short, being in the restaurant world in this wonderful food capital of the world, which is New York City, I saw an opportunity. I, you know, I had been working from the bottom up in the in this in this field there was so many amazing food being present in new york but the food from africa as you well mentioned in your introduction was absent and that food to me had its place here for different reasons you know you grow up in a city like dakar which is a city where you know there's such a diversity a beautiful uh, pastiche of of food from the region, you know, from, you know, the street food, the women from Benin making these amazing black happy fritters. And you have the, the, the maki, what we call maki from Cote d'Ivoire and Cameroon. You know, all that is present in Dakar, not to mention the wonderful food that mom and the aunties cook at home. You know, the, the, the che wujian, our national dish, which is like this amazing, I mean, it's a bad comparison when you say amazing paella because it's much more flavorful than a paella, but this is a rice-based dish with, you know, seafood or tomato-based, or, you know, the yassa with the grilled chicken. All those wonderful flavors were just absent, and I knew they had a place in New York City. And, you know, as you mentioned, there's such a beautiful diversity of food from the continent that you cannot say there is one cuisine. There's cuisines. You know, you take Nigeria, it's like a country with 200 plus languages. So imagine the diversity of the cuisine that can come out of it, you know, and, you know, not only the ingredients, but their methods of cooking. So all of that just made me confident that there was a way to find inspiration in that cuisine as I'm growing as a chef. I wanted to grow as a chef that find inspiration in its tradition. It didn't make sense for me as being a chef from West Africa to present my cuisine being inspired by French cuisine. And that's what was taught to us. You know, the classics in, in cuisines were always inspired by French cuisine and, and that didn't resonate right. I knew that Africa had its place. I knew that that food was amazing. And I knew that New Yorkers would be ready for it. So that's how I started. Eventually, I left the restaurants where I had become a chef, a restaurant in Soho, very successful at the time, to launch my catering and focus on West African food. Okay, so let's take it from there. Chemistry and physics. Mm -hmm. That's what you were studying at the University of York in your home country of Senegal. You come to Cleveland. What happens in Cleveland and why you go from Cleveland to New York? Uh, no, you missed a step here. I stopped by New York on my way to Cleveland. Uh-huh. And then? I tell you today, I still don't know what Cleveland looks like. <laughs> so you never made it to Cleveland. I never made it. So you step in New York. I step in New York. The city that never sleeps. The city that never sleeps, yes, exactly. And you decided this is the stop for Ghetto Ohio. The university is waiting for you. They're still waiting. They've been waiting all this time. And you say you started from the bottom up. What happened? What does that mean when you say you started from the bottom? So you had to live. You came back from a foreign country. You had to survive like all of us. And then what happened there? I arrived in New York three days after I arrived. I had $3,000 approximately. And that was my ticket to Ohio and then beginning in Ohio, figuring it out. 
me and a friend of mine actually who made it to Ohio and who became a physics and a chemical engineer, Abib. So anyway, my way to to Ohio, I stopped by New York. Another friend of ours lived here. He lived in, uh, you know, there's like these these um, places where lots of Senegalese immigrants were living. It was kind of a hotel slash immigrant room slash lots of junkies. At the time, New York was late 80s. You know, it was the AIDS epidemic. It was crack epidemic. You know, I'm not sure if you're, you're familiar with that time. Yes, yes. So those were my neighbors in New York. And three days after I arrived, I was robbed. Everything that I had in savings were gone. So I had a ticket, return ticket to Senegal, which I considered very much. I was hating New York with all my guts, but there was no way for me to make it to Ohio. And I coincidentally happened to have one of the immigrants, Senegalese immigrants who were living in that uh, hotel, was working in a restaurant in the West Village. And that restaurant was looking for a busboy position. A busboy is the guy in the, in the room who just cleans up the plates and, and fills up the water glasses for the customers. And that didn't require any particular skills. So that's how I was hired for that job. And, and the boss of that restaurant was still a good friend, Richard Garvin. The restaurant was in the West Village. And that became my very first boss, my very first job. I've learned so much from being there. And the most important thing for me was in that kitchen of that restaurant, that's when I realized that men could cook. I had never seen men in the kitchen. The cooks were all men? All, 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 men, in the all men in the kitchen. Oh, chef. Nothing like Senegal? No, nothing like West Africa, you know, from Chef Bill, from Chef Bill all the way to, to Manuel, the dishwasher, and, and Samba, the guy who got me the job. They were all men in that kitchen. And they were crazy men, too. There was a crazy crew. And they became my friends, really. They became you know, you know, the place I wanted to hang out the most. You know, the food looked amazing. And, and the chef took a liking into me. And what type of cuisine was this? It was American. It was modern American. The chef had studied in France, so he, he liked to practice his French with me. And that's how he invited me. He knew my story. He knew that I was hating what I was doing now. You know, I already thought of myself as like an intellectual and I'm doing this manual job. And, and he's like, no, you have to, you know, there is a pass out of this. And uh, actually, why don't you take extra shifts when you finish busboy? Come in the kitchen and become a dishwasher. And I'm like, no, I can't be a dishwasher, but there was money coming my way and I was extra money that I badly needed. And I took those jobs and chef was like, really became a mentor to me. He was like taking me from the dishwasher shift to like learning how to do prep, using a knife, using those skills, using a cleaning table. You know, so that's how I went from the prep and then the, from the prep to Garde Manger, which is the next station after Garde Manger. That's when you walk into the cold station of the kitchen and start to learn the salads and the dressings and start to now realize that cooking is chemistry. So, so that's the link now because you're realizing that every reaction in the kitchen, all the sauces, they all respond to what you learn in the lab, you know, the lipids, the, the vinegar is the acid, you know, the lemon, the juice is the other acid, you know, those things are reactions that you can understand now. You understand the terms, even the terms that we use, emulsion that becomes a vinaigrette. Those things were like things that I knew in theory. And now I'm like really 
applying it and realizing that this is even more interesting than what I was learning in labs at, at Dakar University. This is, I mean, this is instant gratification. You can taste it. You know, it's so much more interest than the theory. And eventually from Garden Marger, you move to the other stations in the kitchen, to the grill, to the sauces, to the line cook, from line cook. Eventually I left that restaurant and, you know, I had a skill now. So I went to work in an Italian restaurant, learning a different type of cooking skills, then to a French bistro, Jean-Claude in Soho, still there, they have a few locations now. And from Jean-Claude, went to work to another restaurant called Boom. So that's at Boom that I eventually got promoted to Chef de Cuisine. That restaurant was a, a special place. It was when Soho was booming in New York and uh, we had like an A-list of, of clientele. And it was so, so successful that they opened a two more locations. And one of them, I was designated to be the chef de cuisine at that location. It was in South Beach, Miami, where I became the chef de cuisine. And as I'm designing the menu, I'm also asked to add the influences from my cuisine because those influences, I was already starting to serve them to the staff. When we do family meal at the restaurant, we serve those influences. Like you, you do whatever you want for family meal. But when I do family meal, I was thinking of food for my memory and serving, you know, peanut sauce and red sauce and okra stew and yasa and the staff always loved it. So when I got promoted to run the South Beach restaurant, I was asked, why don't you do specials of like West Africans that you do? And, and that was the beginning of this journey for me. Impressive. So as you get to that point, then, when does it fully click and you say, I'm going to do my own thing? I'm going to bring Senegal to the United States. I'm going to deliver it and they will like it. You know, part of the challenge, you hear a lot of questions. When you ask people, you say, well, why there's not enough African restaurants around places? And people say, well, those are foreign tastes. For instance, you hear questions like they say, American palate is not, is not going to handle it. Right? It's too spicy or it's too acidic or whatever. But yet we see Indian restaurants, we see Chinese restaurants. And maybe those restaurants, those cuisines have adapted to the American palate. I don't know. You are the experts here. What clicked with you and within you? And then when you, you went about it, what would, how did you address those questions, those challenges? It did show up, obviously. It showed up because, you know, we, we have been bombarded with all these stories about Africa that even condition us to think that either we are not enough or our food is not enough, that we even don't have a cuisine, you know, that's, that's actually some of the questions, silly questions I, I received, I heard when I, my first cookbook came out and I was uh, doing my round of interviews. Some people just thought of Africa as a continent of starvation, of a continent where you need to help them and feed them. So anyway, so those questions obviously came up, but very easily I didn't hear that voice because I could see, I had experienced all these other cuisines. I was in New York in the pulse of it and I could see, I appreciated those other cuisines and I knew that African food had its place, you know, and even further, as I was cooking those, those dishes in doing family meal, you know, that moment where the, someone in the kitchen prepares for the whole stuff, I could see how all these people in the stuff were reacting to the food. They loved it. They never had it before. Just they loved it. And that place where we were at Boom was a place where we would also have influences from 
Southeast Asia at the time, it was really some starting. It was early 90s in New York, so it was starting to come. It wasn't even big that at the time. But those flavors from Southeast Asia had some similarities to what we had in, in, in West Africa. You know, they used the fermentation in the flavors. They used those spices and those chilies. That was a cuisine that was about to explode. And I knew, I was, I mean, that place, I was in a place where I could appreciate that and I could see the destination where things were going. So you saw the wave, you wanted to catch the wave. Yeah, I saw an opportunity. I saw an opportunity and that was uh, more than an opportunity. I also wanted to rewrite the story that was told about who we are. Because cuisine is something that, that's, that's important. That's where civilization begins. And that's the moment where they make you believe that your cuisine is not good enough. You are in trouble because that, that's really something that we need to take time to think through. You know, the recipes that we have, especially our traditional recipes, have been passed upon from generation to generation. This is something that's like not only arrived to us from mother to daughter, but that has transcended even time and space, you know, you look at these recipes, you can also find them across the diaspora. If you pay attention, in New Orleans, in South Carolina, in Bahia, in Brazil, in, in Jamaica, in Cuba, in Mexico, people don't even realize that, but Mexico has a strong influence of West Africa. So that's a cuisine we need to really just not only respect, and pay attention to, but it's very important that we also give it the credits, its due credits. And that was one of the things I thought I was going to tap into. I felt like it was important for me as I look for that inspiration that I also bring this as my mission to bring it to the forefront and really tell the story right. So, um, so it was all of that inspired me. So how do they receive it? You open your first menu. Mm -hmm open the menu book, people come and they pronounce the names. <laughs> oh, you have to have everything translated. And then what's the original reaction? Were there challenges at that time and what were they? Oh yeah, there were always challenges and uh, it was always signs of encouragement. When I first opened uh, my first restaurant, it was called Yolele, it was at, uh, in Bed-Stuy. And at the time, Bed-Stuy was, was like the hoods, you know, it was not like the gentrified Bed-Stuy that you see here. Actually, we contributed in, in, in gentrifying these, these areas. We were the very first sit-down restaurant with a wine menu, and it was amazing. And yes and no, I didn't want to compromise. I wanted to offer the food that I loved eating, you know, so I thought there was a role in educating people. And it was received right away by the, first of all, the, the diaspora. Everyone was so proud of bringing their, their friends, their colleagues to a place that would be representing the food that they love. And it was not only the, the, the African immigrants, not only those who are the intellectuals, the bankers, but the, the people from the diaspora as well, the Caribbeans, that was the kind of people that would come to the restaurant. And you only Within first week, we had an article from the New York Times. That was something for me that was like, okay, you know. That's a big promotion, New York Times. In one week, 
One yeah. week, and, and, and that's one of many, you know, we had so many different. We had ABC did a special television program there. Because it was so unique in New York. The place was actually quite unique too, even the inside of the place. We had these, I mean, huge leafy banana trees. And we had these, a friend of mine had this collection from Cote d'Ivoire and he, he was shipping them. And so this is what we use, Alpha, bless his soul. And uh, we had this amazing statue. So it was really like an experience. And that's really what I wanted. You enter and you, you are having an experience. That's why the restaurant is supposed to be offering just a cultural experience. And that's, uh, you know, the flavor, the visual, the, the sound, the music, everything was transporting you to, to that part of the world where this food is from. And, and New Yorkers, it resonated, you know, it resonated. Yeah. So it's about identity, culture. There's some politics in it because you're asserting your culture, your identity. It's not just an individual identity. It's a national identity often, right? So the food people eat in one specific space. But it's also pioneering. You're pioneering, literally. You are a trailblazer in, you know, in one specific space, in this case, the American space. Uh, and you're doing this alongside other culture that talk to you asserting themselves, the Indian with the, the Chinese and so on. The question is that I raised at the beginning here, why don't we see enough African restaurant park, for instance, knowing what you just described? And I don't think I'm exaggerating. You go to any major American cities, forget the small town, any major, and you say, I want to eat some African food. People ask us this question all the time, and we don't have recommendations for them often because it's so limited, right? You go um, in, in a place even like Washington, eventually you find Ethiopian, Ethiopian. Well, what about the Nigerians? Where are the Senegalese? Where are the Congolese? We just said it's as diverse as the continent. Yeah, the cuisine is as diverse as the continent. Yet we don't see that diverse. We see the diversity in people. African immigrants are all over the place, like I described again. The scientists, we don't see the Pierre Thiams. Why is it such a rarity? What are the challenges there? And many of them, many of them. And uh, I will start with the disruption of colonization that really played a big role on us. That disruption created this mentality. We tend to not often even put so much value to our food. And I'm giving you an example. And that example that happened to me when I did this project in Lagos to open a restaurant on Victoria Island, which is like the prime areas of Lagos. And that was a first restaurant that was serving West African inspired cuisine at an upscale level. And that example of Lagos, you can't find it duplicated in most major cities of Africa. If you go to the downtown areas where the best addresses are, you will see French, you will see Italian, you will see Japanese, you will see all kinds of cuisines. And oftentimes what's missing is the local cuisine. And that's, this is this mindset that we are not thinking of ourselves in these places, you know, and we have sometimes even stopped ourselves from even thinking of developing our cuisine to that level. And it doesn't need to be a stretch. There is, we have plenty to be at that level. When we open Lagos and up to today, Nok Bayalara is the destination in Lagos, is the place you go online, 
you'd look into restaurants and it's like the locals as well as the expatriates because the expatriates are looking for this flavor they they're here why they're going to be looking for french food when they are in lagos so that's that's what's been happening and that's the same problem that we're having here that's one of the reasons another reason being america has had obviously a tricky relationship with africa in its history and that relationship has also created lots of propaganda i mean you in your system in your medium the media have played a role in in really telling a story of africa that is not the story that we know and that story of africa has created some kind of a, a mistrust among our potential clients our potential customers people don't think of africa as the place where they will go to have enjoy a wonderful meal that was the case i mean it's going to change i know it's changing and i'm i can see it now i mean yes we are pioneering but look at today you look at new york city there are restaurants like tatiana you cannot have a, a reservation at tatiana unless you you book it like you know six months before and that's a cuisine that's proudly west african inspired by my boy kwame good example another one another a nigerian brother um doing the same thing in brooklyn department of culture so those those are little little examples that tells you that it's getting there this year they i think there are four four five cookbooks that are coming out in in the us that are inspired by west african food and that's really a first never seen before the fact is this cuisine not only is delicious but it's also a cuisine that's timely because the conscious consumers that is the growing number of consumers are looking for a food that's plant-based that's diverse that's also the fact that africa is the last frontier people are now more curious and they are looking into thanks to the media the food network and all that have popularized the food to a point where people are now more comfortable into exploring other cultures and they're realizing that this cuisine especially the cuisine from this part of the world is the cuisine that answers all those challenges that we are facing you know our world we are facing challenges of like a food that's not diversified we eating the same grains we eating so you know we looking for plant based diets now that's what west african cuisine is is plant based at its core you know it's like leafy vegetables is beans is grains all of those are coming and then the protein at the lesser scale and the method of using of cooking are so full of flavors it's not the spicy thing that people want us to believe yes we put some heat to it but that's, that's also optional and we talk about it in our cookbooks no but the myth is making you think oh this west african food is unhealthy or is too spicy is far from the truth it's really far i think when chinese food was trying to break into this space they had they faced similar uh, challenges as well so did the japanese i mean imagine people trying to eat sushi It was not always easy. No, most yeah, people in the world know it's raw fish. Yeah, so but there's an issue of packaging, maybe also how our presentation. I mean, you were talking about the French uh, culture, the French uh, traditions there. Even the rating is French. Michelin, everybody wants to be Michelin. <laughs> so maybe there's also restructuring all that stuff. Unless it's checked, marked by Michelin. you don't exist you know in so many ways the, the old system so the question to you is uh is presentation one of the challenge you know the french are do they they exceptional in doing presentation you know they they make a couple dots on your plate 
they put some red circle to it and it's going to cost you 50 bucks. And everybody says, you need to try this stuff. And you're like, what exactly I'm trying, right? So this presentation is also part of it, tradition as well. One challenge we face a lot, at least I have seen in my experience, you travel to the U.S., you find African restaurants. I'm just speaking on this side. Sometimes service is a problem. You know, uh, in Washington, I know of a restaurant where the food is really good. But if you're going to go to that restaurant, you better eat before you leave your house. <laughs> because when you get there, <laughs> it's going to take you two hours, an hour and a half before they bring you your food. The food will be good, but you'll be so angry at that point. You may not even be there. So the last thing I want to do is to bring my American friend to a restaurant where I know I have to eat at my house before I go to that restaurant because the service is so lousy. So is that also something that we need to, to train ourselves to bring up? Because time is not elastic in this space. Time is elastic in Africa. We're not often in a hurry. We, we have time to enjoy the food with our friends. Yeah, is that a certain defeat? Is it that a challenge? That well, yeah, and that's a challenge that's easy to fix, really. I mean, what happens oftentimes, you go to those restaurants that you're mentioning, those are mom and pop's restaurants that just like entrepreneurs who have no background in, in the food business, really, and who know how to cook a couple of dishes from home and, and, and decide to, to open a restaurant. But it's more to that than a restaurant, you know, that you mentioned the service is a part of the restaurant, the packaging, the presentation, the plating, all of it is part of the restaurant. Most importantly, the mise en place. Mise en place is what allows you to have your, your, your menu ready so that when the customer comes and he orders it, the dish arrives to the plate, to the table within 15 minutes. All of those things, there is an education. So these people that you go to in little Senegal, you go to a restaurant and, and you wait for two hours for your dish to arrive. That's because they have just best thought of opening a restaurant as an eating place that will cook those dishes, but they haven't had the, the structure that's necessary. So it's not something that's uh, typical of a culture. You know, it's, it's just about having the right people doing this profession and, and that can be easily fixed. So again, and, and the plating that you're talking about, it's all relatives. Like there's, we have beautiful dishes and they can be presented in a beautiful way without compromising, without having to, to mimic the French way of plating because of these beautiful colors that come into our dish. You have like an opportunity to take your plate as a, a canvas really and turn it into something that will be attractive to the eye. You have it in the tradition. I mean, I go to homes in, in Senegal or in Nigeria and sometimes a bowl is presented to you in its simplicity, but it's so beautiful. Absolutely. I was at Terubi um, a few months ago in Dakar and just the way they would plate their seafood and some dishes with everything, it's beautiful. I cannot resist but take a picture and posting on Instagram. So that means African need training is important, right? To commercialize this thing. And not commercialize in a negative way, but to repackage the food so that it's palatable to the eye. You eat with your eyes first. <laughs> you eat with your eyes. And exactly. It's always the eyes first. Right? It's the eyes, is the smell, the mixture, and all. And then is the fruit, then is the top. So in terms of those entrepreneurs like yourself who are trying to eke out a space in an American setting, it's not just the food, it's not just the creativity, you need to get the finance. 
is that an area that is also challenging or not? Because we see restaurants come and go. I presume it's not just about presentation, it's not okay. about food. The sustainability itself is challenging. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's a tough business. It's a tough business where every penny counts. So you have to make sure you have your accounting right as well. And I've learned that the hard way. When I first opened my restaurant, my first restaurant, I knew the kitchen, but I also didn't realize that I had to know the accounting. And that, that was easily, after four years, we had to close that restaurant. But I never gave up because I knew that people wanted this product. So that's when I opened my second restaurant with a better understanding of the accounting part. That's a restaurant business. You know, it's hard to find the investment because unless you have it tight, unless you have a concept that works and, and that concept needs to be well thought. After two sit-down restaurants in New York and two sit-down in Lagos and Dakar, I realized that New York City for me was a place where the direction of the restaurant system would be the fast casual. And that's where the restaurant is going, the industry is going. And even those so-called Michelin star restaurants are realizing they're not sustainable. A lot of them are like just there because either sponsors or they are in the direction of closing. I have close friends in the restaurant, the top ones, Rene, Rene Redzepi, for instance, at Noma, which is like the top for a long time. He's like phasing out. He closes... He's closing officially in two years, and he's going in the CPG business. CPG. What is the CPG? CPG is, uh, you know, being in the mass production in the supermarkets, which is what I've done with, with Yolele. We have Yolele in supermarkets now, in, in Whole Foods. We have Yolele at Target. We have Yolele at Mayo and at Sprouts, because that's the way for you to reach a wider audience. For me, that, that started with realizing that there is still going to be some people who would be intimidated by entering an African restaurant and sitting down and looking at a dish that says poisson braisé or kijenu or chewijen and they're just like scared to try it. So fast casual was the answer to me. You come to the restaurant and that's how I have, have two Teranga restaurants in New York. They're fast casual. You enter and you see the menu on the board and you decide what's going to be on your plate. You want the red rice, you want the onion sauce, you want the fufu, you want the acheke. And you decide gradually what's going to be on your bowl. You want the fonio. And then you decide what protein you're going to have on your bowl. Is it go going to be the roasted salmon with a shawmula topping? Or is it going to be the grilled chicken with onion and with, with lemon marinated? And all the beans, you know. The, and so those dish, different ways of presenting just this West African cuisine, and I go abroad West Africa, and that's intentional too. I never wanted to limit myself to Senegal. I really wanted this cuisine to also be a way of decolonizing myself. You know, these borders are not real, and this food transcends the borders. So with a fast casual approach, I was able to do that, and people have been able to just come to it comfortably. And you look at the Teranga restaurant, we have a midtown location, on 53rd and Lexington, or we have a Harlem location on 110 and 5th Avenue. When you enter it, you are surprised by the diversity. People from all backgrounds, like, you know, hipsters, Indians, Chinese, American, Caucasians, and Africans are together coming and comfortably having these different foods because they're comfortable, they're not intimidated. The setting is inviting, but it's still having an experience. And that, well, that took me to the next level. As I'm getting to the uh, Teranga, I also knew that 
it was an opportunity to educate and to bring our ingredients. Why are not our ingredients are not available in the market? Why isn't Fonio in the market? So that's when I decided to bring packaging that would be an opportunity for economic prosperity for the small farming communities in Africa. So there's so many opportunities that come. We brought Fonio, and that was, what, seven years ago in one supermarket first when Whole Foods were opening in, in Harlem. And today we are in all the Whole Foods in America, and we have a diversity of Fonio products. We have chips, we have Fonio pilafs, the yasa, the jollof. You know, you can go and get them directly. You have them online now. So this is to tell you that people are ready for these African flavors. People are ready to try it. People are ready because they know it's having impact. It's good for their health. We even introduced our products to industries like the brewery. We have Fonio beer now. We have collaborations with like Brooklyn Brewery. This is just came out in the in the market this week, uh, this, this past week, actually, at Whole Foods. You can go and have Fonio Rising Beer, that's like the third collaboration we have on Fonio Beer with Brooklyn Brewery and Whole Food. It's very impressive that we're in this case, as you look at the space, I call you a pioneer, a trailblazer. Other people will be looking into your footsteps and following into those footsteps. What is the outlook, briefly? What's, what do you see the outlook for African cuisine in the United States? African cuisines in plural, like you say. Oh, it's brilliant. Like I said, this journey, I've seen how these cuisines have arrived. It always started here in New York. I remember when Japanese sushi that you mentioned was starting. It was like in the late 90s, not even later than that, in the late 90s. Before that, there was no sushi in New York. I remember when Thai food was arriving in New York. I remember when Mexican food was arriving in New York. Those things that you guys see now here, they were not here in the 90s, they were not here. In the 2000s, Mexicans were not here. You would see traces of it in Texas, but it was not as widespread as it is now. And those cuisines have their limitations. Africa is so vast, has so much to offer, and there is so much creativity that's coming from that continent. So we just we have just started scratching the surface. Absolutely. Okay, so on that note, Pierre Thiam, I'd like to thank you for joining us on Into Africa today and sharing your perspectives, which I'm sure our listeners will appreciate. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pierre. Oh, it's my pleasure, Mbemba. It's a pleasure. <laughs> thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. Mm-hmm.